Welcome to the Green Minds podcast. My name is Claudia, and I am honored to welcome David Vetter in the podcast today. David is a climate writer with over 15 years experience in online and print media, currently working as a senior contributor for Forbes Sustainability, focusing on climate change and sustainability. He has covered environment, culture, and tech for titles such as South China Morning Post, The Guardian, Discovery, Orientations, Silk Road, and Style. David is currently reading for an MSc in Sustainability Enterprise and the Environment at the University of Oxford. His interests are in decarbonization, complex systems, and the development of circular economies. Welcome to the Green Minds podcast, David. Can you please tell us a bit more about yourself? So obviously I read this short intro, but I also know that you spent a significant part of your career in Asia. So kind of what led you there? What made you stay in Asia? How And how would you describe the biggest differences between Asia and the UK? I was born in Edinburgh. I, I'm, I'm British, but I, I was born in Edinburgh. I grew up in Cardiff. I spent most of my adult life overseas. So I don't really know where I belong, but I do quite enjoy being a fish out of water. So I, I made it, majored in archaeology a long, long time ago and archaeology and geophysics, which I loved doing, but every archaeologist I came across told me there's no work in it. There's no work in archaeology, so go somewhere else. So I, I, of course, I later learned that's not true, but when you're young, you kind of, you do believe older people or professionals in their field. And so I, I, I believe that and I said, okay, well, I always loved writing. I want to do something with that. So I ended up, I ended up out in Hong Kong teaching English and writing educational materials, just trying to figure out where I should be. And then sort of the writing developed. And then I realized, well, journalism would be one way to, to make that into a career. So I, I ended up going back and doing an MA in, in international journalism in the UK. That was at Cardiff, in fact. And yeah, I, I ultimately became a journalist, but I, I didn't start out in climate at that point. I was doing, I started in news and I ended up in, in cultural journalism. And then I realized, you know, there's something more important going on here. And that's how I ended up in climate. And was there any kind of aha moment where you realized, oh, climate is what I want to do or just generally develop? Mm. I mean, I think if you... If you went to school at any point after the eighties, I went to school, the eighties, nineties, and I guess a bit, a little bit two thousands. And at that point, you know, there was very much an understanding that we were, we were having some rather serious impacts on, on the planet. So as a, as a kid, I was already inculcated in that knowledge and it, it was just becoming increasingly more aware. I come from a reasonably scientific family. My My father's a researcher and a med oh, he's a medical researcher, a doctor and an epidemiologist. So very interested in evidence and the evidence was mounting rapidly that something was, was very wrong with our planetary system. And it, I said, okay, well, I want to be more involved in this. I want to be involved in something that is not frivolous. I think there comes a point in, in many people's lives where they, they want to feel like they're doing something a little bit more valuable or significant. So it was, it was part of that, but. Becoming a, so it was the 2010s and becoming a climate journalist, there weren't many climate journalists around at that time. And it wasn't until 2018 that I, I told a, an editor, I was working in a newsroom. I was back in Asia, I was in Hong Kong. And I told an editor, I wanted to start a, a column or a section specifically about climate change. And, and they said, no one wants to read about climate. People don't, readers don't care about climate change. So. This was 2018. 
That was 2018. Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, quite, I mean, really recent, <laughs> to be honest. And I'd written, I'd, I'd been writing about cloud, I'd been writing environmental stories, but sporadically, because no one wanted, at, at that time, at least not where I was, they, they didn't really want to have a, a full-time environmental or climate person. Mm. So, so yeah, so, I, so essentially I quit and, and I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do this freelance and see if I can turn it into something. And, and, and here I am. Mm. No, the, the, I mean, it's great to hear that you're kind of at the start because more and more the, the climate is present in the media. And, and I think that there can be also distinguished between kind of good climate journalism and, and not so good. So we can talk about it later, but I've had a, so I've read some of your articles also back when you were in Hong Kong and they range kind of from. You know, an interview interview with Jane Goodall to covering how billionaires impact with climate. And I I read in your bio that kind of your focuses or interests are decarbonization, complex system, and circular economy. When you have been covering the climate, have you been kind of trying to be be a generic generalist, or have you found a niche which you which you focused on? I mean, I am. I would say I'm still very much a generalist. I think that there's. I think there's a lot of scope for speaking to a general audience and the mm. majority of people out there are, are not really involved in this stuff. They're not really yeah. aware. They're not aware of really what's coming and, and what needs to be done. And it's, that's still the case. And when you're learning about climate and, and you come to a point where you, you think, oh, well, everyone knows this stuff. This mm. is old hat. You know, everyone, everyone's on board. And then you go a little bit further and you discover that's not the case at all. People, people aren't thinking constantly about climate change. It's, and a lot of that is because it's not been made relevant to them. It's not a part of it. They don't realize it's a part of their daily life and that it's affecting everything. I mean, literally everything. And so making that connection is something that I think a generalist should be looking at. You, you've got to try to speak to a fair, you know, as wide an audience as possible, which, but sometimes I've, I've aimed at, at that audience. And sometimes I've been a bit more specific. It, it depends. I've, I've try to wear a couple of different hats from time to time. Yeah. No, we can definitely talk about kind of also the challenges specific to climate reporting or climate writing. But before that, I want to ask you about where you're now currently. So we're recording this interview when you're in Oxford, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, you're studying the MSc in sustainability enterprise and the environment. So what led you to, to study this and how has it impacted you? So, right. I, was, I moved back to the UK. I was writing a lot of climate articles and talking to a lot of researchers. And I ended up speaking to people at Oxford. I spoke to a lot of people at Imperial as well. But in conversations with Cameron Hepburn and Lawrence Wainwright, they, for some reason, at some point, they suggested that I apply for, the, for this course because they knew that I was interested in getting a bit more involved in research and kind of doing my own thing in a sense and, and looking into sustainability and finding out, you know, being a generalist, I was like, what, what, where can I kind of add value in this, this struggle that we've got? And they, yeah, they, they told me to go ahead and apply. And to my surprise, I, I got into the course. So I, so here I am and almost a year later, well, for, yeah, more than a year later. <laughs> and when you, when you think about kind of what you've learned in, over, the, over this year, how has that been? How does it been for you? You know, because you, you came from a background where you obviously knew something about climate change. But as you said before, you know, or at least for me, studying a climate-related subject made me feel like I'm in a bubble of 
you know, like-minded people who really care about climate. So was this the same for you? Do you feel like you're a bit of a bubble, which you, which you also spoke about? And for example, reading the news, you know, are you more critical towards what you read after doing this course? Well, I'm not more critical of the media. I, c I couldn't be more critical than I already was of the media because <laughs> as a media person, you know, you know how it works. You know, you, you've seen how the sausage is made, as we say, yeah. and it's not, uh, it's not pretty. So I, I think it's given me more tools to, to deconstruct those narratives that when, when I see something that is being misconstrued or something that's been fed into the media by perhaps a third party. I guess what, what's changed, I, I think if you, if you go and look at a, a, a worthwhile course now, they'll, they'll impart a greater sense of systems. And I think that I, I've got this sort of, this dream of doing a kind of educational product around systems whereby, you know, we, we give kids at a, at a far earlier age and some idea of complex systems and how things interact. And I think, I think it can be done. Like kid, kids are quite good with like fairly complex concepts, as long as you explain them in a, in a, in a tangible way, because that's, that's, that's one of the essential pieces that's missing. You know, I, I would say a, apart from media literacy, which is a whole other issue in, in society, I think people don't have a good idea of the position, the, the, the mechanisms around them, the way that they, the way that their behavior interacts with the system, the way the system affects them. It's just, it's just not there. It's not in, it's not in early education. It's not in secondary education for that matter. So I th yeah, that's, I think that's the, one of the key takeaways from, from all this and being able to speak to people like Kate Rayworth or Dieter Helm directly and, and, and get my head around that is really enlightening, I think. Mm. No, this is actually same for me with, you know, being able to talk about these things in more depth with people who actually are experts in the field has been super helpful and placing everything within a context. But super interesting about, you know, complex systems thinking, because it's something extremely important, especially with a topic like the climate. But I'd like to now move on to speaking a bit more about kind of the climate writing and, and how, how you as a as a journalist, have seen this develop. So let's start with like a tricky, a tougher question about what the biggest challenges you've experienced are. You mentioned some of them already a bit, but how, so like first question is, what are the biggest challenges? And the second is kind of, have they changed over time? Yeah, well, they have and they haven't. The challenge still is, is breaking through to that general audience when you have, you're, you're competing against stories about the new iPhone or you're competing against stories about celebrities. That's when you, that's when you're working in the, in the, you know, general media or yeah. you know, people, I don't like to use the term mainstream media, but uh, that is everyone's fighting for attention. It's the, this is the attention economy. So breaking through with something that doesn't switch people off is still the challenge. And, and that's. And it's, it's an, it's a bitter irony that as things get more desperate, people are more likely perhaps to get switched off unless, you know, you, you can see a, an impact right in front of you, which we're seeing more and more often. So people are going to be switched on and off and on and off more often. I think in the UK here, we're highly likely to have intense, if not record heat waves the coming summer as we did last summer. 
And then at that point, you'll notice the media flips again and they go, oh yeah, they, they remember that climate change is a thing. And they go, oh, we, now we've got to talk about it again. And it's, uh, you know, they, they have very short memories, the editors and execs and they, I guess, and people get burned out and you can understand that and they want to, they want to get on with their lives and they want to, and people want to hope. And you, so you've got to give them hope, but at the same time, you've got to ensure that this is getting through, that this is serious and this is relevant to, to the, to the reader or to the viewer. So that's, yeah, it's a constant sort of struggle, how to, how to balance yep. those sorts of coverage. Yeah, no, I, that's what, that was one of my questions. Like how to, how do you stay motivated within this kind of battle between communicating sometimes very negative and daunting moments or, or kind of challenges and staying positive at the same time or kind of being, you know, not, not being all, all negative. So how have you personally been, you know, dealing with this? Well, I mean, I don't think there's really a choice. I think, I think you have to, I think you have to say, we have a chance. We can, we can make a change. We can do something because, you know, there isn't really an option. You can't just, just walk into the sea and disappear. You've got to keep trying as, as, and, and that's, that's always perhaps been the, 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 the madness of, of the human condition, you, you know, not to get too philosophical, but, uh, but yeah, you, you, you've got to keep trying. So with it, you know, every week there may be a litany and a sort of an endless procession of, of mm. really quite scary scientific findings. But at the same time, it's also an incredibly exciting time. People, this is necessity being the mother of invention. It's, in, it's creating incredible new ways of thinking and doing and incredible new innovations that wouldn't have been possible, you know, a decade or two ago. So it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extraordinary dichotomy whereby you've got, and the, the, the stakes couldn't be higher. Mm. You've got this sort of impending who knows what. We, I mean, we, we're seeing these impacts in Antarctica and these extraordinary record sea surface temperatures right now. And we simply don't know what, what that entails. That is beyond the ability of scientists who, to really understand the, the, this, these types of tipping points. So we know something's coming. But at the same time, it's a, there's sort of grounds for, you know, hope and wonder and optimism that we, we're, we're such an inventive sort of species and we can do all these extraordinary things. So, so yeah, it's kind of, it's that juggling that you have to do. And, and that, I guess that's what keeps me, keeps me going. <laughs> yeah. I, I also would, would like to connect to this one thing you said before about the attention economy and how the readers are constantly bombarded with information from new iPhones to whatnot. And I recently read a, a report, I don't know if it was just the country level for Slovakia, where I'm from, but that people are more and more likely to kind of not read ne negative related or neg negative type of news. They're likely to not read at all or read something that they're interested in that's positive, etc. So I'd like to touch upon the topic of kind of headlines and how, you know, people usually choose what they read based on how it's kind of formed of the first two or three sentences that they read. And we had a lecture on media where, where I learned that usually it's the editor who's kind of coming up with the, with the, with the headline, which sometimes, you know, they're usually very extreme, either very positive or negative or kind of almost tabloidy sometimes. So I'd like to ask you as, as a journalist, is it true that the editor is usually the one coming up with the headline and 
how how does this all work and what's your opinion on you know the headlines being very much on the extremes well that's okay so there are a few things going on here mm. uh, headline writing it has traditionally been done in-house by you know an editor you know it could be a sub-editor or a chief sub or uh, so, someone at the desk now generally speaking what will happen is a reporter will be asked to suggest headlines that that's a possibility but they don't have reporters don't have any executive say over what goes into a story really at that point once it's submitted the the uh, the headline is up to someone else and that's because and that's always been the case that's been the case for a hundred years or more but mm. it's more it's even more important now because of the business models that media has created or shackled itself to because now it's all about attention as, as you say it's about eyeballs and it's about if it's not about ad revenue then it's about subscriptions or both and but it's it, it's it's a similar principle because you're going to get subscriptions from referrals from probably something like Google. And what that means is that a headline has to be structured in a specific, specific way, according to keywords, according to SEO, search engine optimization. So yeah, it, this tends to remove the nuance, the, the, the subtlety from, from stories, you know, for, or at least from the headline Yeah, and it has to be attention grabbing. And obviously the, the extreme version of that is, is clickbait. What we know of is clickbait. I, I could do a whole podcast just about headlines, tabloid style headlines and clickbait. They, they, they are designed to grab the attention of as many people as possible. And that's not the fault of journalists. That's an economic decision because there is no, if, if no one clicks on your story, now, there are plenty of journalists out there who are paid by the click. And increasingly so, yeah. and and that can be that could be a legacy publication. It can be for you know a new up and coming media organization. But wherever you are in the media, that is now the business model. How many clicks does your story get? And that's that's clickbait. It's got it has to be some form of that. And if you're not getting attention, you're not getting clicks. And if you're not getting clicks, you're not getting money. Yeah. You're not getting paid. That's how you get paid. So people complain about clickbait. I do, but you, you have to, if you don't write it, no one's going to read it. Yeah. Now, it's interesting to hear your perspective on this and, and thank you for that, for clarifying this because in the end, you know, media is a whole big business. I don't know how many trillion of dollars worth. So yeah, definitely important to hear your perspective as well. Mm. Well, I mean, the, there's lots and lots of bitter ironies for journalists and especially for reporters in, in that sort of headline mm. statement in that those ad revenues, you know, the, the journalists getting, are getting paid less and less and less. We'd, we've never been well paid, but increasingly ad revenue goes to the execs. And in some cases, if, if it's a public company, it goes to shareholders. The, the last person who sees any of that money is going to be the, the reporter who does the actual work. So, you know, and so reporters can be quite bitter people for that reason. And yeah, that, that's, that's the reality we have now. I probably every journalist out there would like to change that reality, but, but how do you go about sort of rewiring 
our our version of capitalism as it currently is. You know, it's yeah, that's a tall order. Yeah, something that comes up to my mind is is the show Succession. I don't know if you've watched it. Oh yeah, yeah, very much. Absolutely, <laughs> very much about related to this. So yeah. I highly recommend good context for that. But one yeah. other thing that has probably changed the business, the way the media operates, is social media. And you know, there is a lot of all of these big names in in the news have you know started accounts specifically for the climate. They're informing there is also connected to headlines, right? Because they usually put the headline on a picture and publish that and then put a link in bio or whatever to direct readers there. So how do you see kind of the media landscape being influenced by social media? Do you maybe use social media as well for your own promo or how 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 do you see that? And also in, in the context of climate change. So do you think it has helped push the climate agenda in in in, in a way or has it kind of been an impediment to I'm making people interested. Oh, that's a tough question. Yeah, because I mean, all all of these things are tools. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's another communication tool. It's and it's the most powerful communication tool we've probably ever seen in terms of at least in terms of the audience you can reach. You know, you, I can get to far more people than your average copy of the Guardian might just through Twitter. So. It's very powerful, but you know, great power and great responsibility and all that. And so whilst you do have the opportunity to connect with real researchers and, and genuine professors of whatever mm. it might be, atmospheric physics, you're also come you're coming into contact with bad actors, you know, and we're in a particular bind right now with Twitter and its current incarnation being turned over to the forces of disinformation, essentially, by its new billionaire owner. So I don't, I'm not sure what's going to happen there. I mean, he seems intent into driving the Twitter into the ground. And at this point, I think it would, it would be better for the world if Twitter was, was gone and, and was replaced by something else whether that's blue sky or whatever it might be. But I think that there is a need for a, for a, a viable platform where you have some idea that the person who's saying, who's making a statement is that person is not pretending to be someone else. And you can get it as we say from the horse's mouth, because yeah. that was quite powerful. I mean, Twitter was a gift. It used to be, not 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 really now, but it, it was a gift to journalists because you could directly communicate with, mm. I suppose, news makers, mm. whether that's celebrities or researchers or public figures or politicians. Very, very, a very, very chaotic town square, but but it was it was that, and and now that's it, that's leaving us, I think. But. Uh, Having that capacity is important. And, and of course, you know, if it, and if you're a journalist and if, if you're just thinking about it from a, a, a marketing perspective or getting your story out there, it's, it's, it's fantastic, you know, and I think more and more people are trying to use things like Instagram as, as, as Twitter sort of collapses, they're looking to other ways to get out there, you know, TikTok's blowing up a lot of, especially younger climate activists and organizers are having huge impact there. So yeah, absolutely vital. But again, it's it's a tool that could you know there's there's, there's good and evil going on on yep. there, and we just got to see how it shakes out. Yeah, no, exactly. But 
I think that this is also about kind of accountability and disinformation. How do you find this information with kind of good sources and good references, right? Or this is at least from my perspective, is that, you know, ever, anyone can say anything, but when there is no name under the article, then you obviously know, oh, this is not something that I'm going to source. And we had a very brief conversation about this prior to recording about kind of how you ensure that what you write as a climate journalist is as scientific as possible while communicating the message in a coherent way for a general person to understand. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about, you know, there is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change who publishes these long, ultra-lengthy, highly technical reports. And I want to ask how you approach kind of the task of translating the scientific knowledge and research and hugely complex data sources into compelling stories for broader audiences and, and yeah, how, how this has been for you. Right, right. I, I think there's a few things to mention here. One is that I think to, to talk about science communication generally and science journalism generally, I think there needs to be greater adherence to citing sources. I, I assiduously cite sources. I link to them. If, if I put a data point in a story, I will try and, you know, usually to include a link and it will be, and it has to be in my view, an academic source it has to be a recognized journal. You got to read the damn thing. You got to know where it's coming from. You and ideally have an idea of the authors, who they are, where where they are. What are the, what's the other stuff they've done? You have to know it. You have to know your stuff, and you have to present that stuff. And I'm not a big fan of general media printing climate stories without linking the actual research. You know, here's the you can see for yourself. You know, it's it's. You, you do need to interpret the thing and give it to the audience because not everyone has time to go through a 50 page, whatever it might be, but give them the opportunity to conveniently go along and, and take a look if they want to, you know, give, you know, further reading, you know, and, and again, this, there's another, there are other economic factors here. There, there are editors who will say, we don't want to link to other sites, other sources, because it'll take eyes away from our page. It's completely ludicrous. So again, it's, it's, it's the, it's a, a case of incentives creating bad behavior. IPCC reports specifically, obviously, as you know, they're extremely dense, extremely lengthy. So it very much depends who you're writing for. If you're writing for a very general audience, you can speak to some of the researchers, speak to some of the IPCC reviewers and authors and ask them to highlight what they consider to be the most significant portions of the report. And you may, you may pick out some that they haven't identified. And with any paper, you know, you begin with the abstract and the conclusions. So with the IPCC report, you have to take the same approach. You break it down into manageable chunks. Now, newsrooms that have more resources can assign, you know, one reporter to each chapter or, or each section of the, of the IPCC report. But I'm not sure how much value there is in that for the general audience. What you've got to remember about IPCC is the, the reports are a, a synthesis of everything we already know. If you're a good climate journalist, there shouldn't be anything in there that's going to surprise you, really. It's a big headline statement. 
it's not just a synthesis of what we know. It's the IPCC report is also a politically watered down synthesis of what we know. So remember that. And they give a kind of a conservative through point of, of what governments are prepared to agree on in a way. So the policy implications, yes, they are very significant, but they don't offer anything we don't already know. So I think that spending hundreds of man hours trying to communicate, you know, the, the intricacies of the IPCC stuff, it, you know, you, what are the main takeaways and does it, does it change the, the calculation, the calculus? And usually it doesn't because, you know, if your, if your readers been, have been paying attention, they'll know. And if they don't, then you, you got to get them up to speed. Yeah. No, I, I mentioned mostly IPCC to illustrate how lengthy and complex these things can get because, you know, you have all these confidence quotes and, and, and everything. So for a general reader, I mean, I definitely haven't read IPCC reports before I started studying this and I probably won't continue reading IPCC reports after I finish or, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to read a summary somewhere. But uh, I want to touch upon one more thing that you said about that it's a politically or it's, it's a summary where, you know, there have been political inputs into it or like every line by line is decided on in a, in a big ala where they decide how to, how to say everything. So I want to touch upon the fact that climate change is often a politicized issue, right? And that, you know, some politicians even say that it that doesn't exist. You know, we have the U.S. example of there. So how do you kind of, there's two questions. How do you navigate this? challenge of being journalistically integrity, the, the journalistic integrity of, of covering climate change within political boundaries, while also holding the politicians and, and governments and, and, and businesses accountable in a way. You have, have you had any, I don't know, stories where you've, where you've been like, how do I, how do I go about this or has it been okay for you? Uh, I've not worried too much about, uh, well, okay. So. It, it's climate change is only truly politicized in the presence of people who deny it's happening or that it presents a serious threat or that we should be taking action. I mean, obviously within, within the groups who accept the science, there's disagreement, but that's not, that's not necessarily a politically grounded disagreement. You know, that, that might be an economics issue or, or something else. I mean, in, in terms of Politicians who say it's not happening or, or other groups who say it's not simply not occurring. I, I, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about them. I'm not especially interested in, in speaking to them. They have nothing to contribute. They, they're just trying to prevent necessary change. You just have to stay critical and know your topic. You, you present the evidence and denialists do not have evidence. You know, they just have bluster. So you just stick to your guns, be accurate, tell the story. And there, there are enough people out there who are rational enough to, to get it, I think. Okay. That's a very politically correct statement. <laughs> I think it's a diplomatic answer to my question. Uh, go, go ahead. Can you, can you go further into that? No, I mean, I mean, it's just more that there's been this, debate about how it's connected to the headlines about how kind of the tone of voice for example should be in you know describing businesses like from oil and gas companies to to governments not doing enough and yeah i was just more interested in because you say you don't really have the need to talk to them 
but maybe I don't know. I know that they probably not don't read every article that's out there. It's more just. Do you think that journalists should be more s- strict? While like how 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 do I how do I how do I explain this? It's more like how can the journalists communicate the urgency and 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 say that this is not enough what they are doing while being still neutral as or critical as 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 a journalist should be right? Because this is what I, I I have a feeling about that. You know you. Either you write an opinion column where you can clearly express your opinion and and even indicate your I don't know political affiliation or something like that, or you want to be neutral and stay scientific and very much adhere to the facts. So I was just curious about this. Oh, well, no, I, okay. I understand your point, and 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 I would say that you know all all you have to do is say what's happening, and that's damning enough, or say what's not happening. Because you explain, you know, the, the, these are the latest developments. These, this is this is the headline. You know, IPCC has has declared, yeah, un, un, unquestionably, this is anthropogenic, and the 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 pushback is, you know, we we can't afford to do this now, and 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 then, so so you you build that into the piece, and you say, so and so says. We yeah. can't afford to do this. And then you, you give evidence showing that not only can you afford to do this, mm. you can't afford not to do this. And that there is there is more than enough scientific evidence to demonstrate that. Now, I mean, and, and people will people will come after you. You know, that that's fine. That's fine. But there's you 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 you've got to be coherent and and you've got to you got to describe reality, yeah. Not 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 the not the unreality that there that forces out there would like you to describe. Yeah. So as long as you as long as you simply say what's happening, that's enough. That's enough for people to say you're biased. People will already say you're oh, you're in the pocket of big renewable or whatever if you yeah. simply say what's happening. Mm. So it's not it's so it's not politically correct because yeah, yeah. You will all you will be attacked. Simply for saying what's happening. Yeah, you're right. It's also about the audience being, you know, critical, having critical thinking, and and definitely, I think also kind of lit. I don't want to go in that direction, but like literacy level and education and critical thinking is a big topic when when it comes to media. And I certainly have on myself seen a, a, a kind of a change, having you know progress from high school to bachelor to masters, like how the way I read media, how I approach it, how I, you know make it my own. So so this is definitely an interesting debate, but I still want to hear a bit more about you and your coverage. So can you please give us a, an example of your favorite story that you've done on climate or anything that stands out? Have you had any feedback from your readers, communities that have been impacted something? Is there something that pops up in your mind? I'm surprised by what strikes a chord with people. I don't always know what's going to prove to be popular. Mm. But you can get a kind of inkling. There's a it's kind of obscure one that I did, which I spoke to some researchers in the U.S. about ice cores that they'd been drilling. Oh, no, not ice cores they'd been drilling. Ice cores that they'd retrieved from a, a military base in Greenland. And this base was built during the Cold War to defend against a Russian invasion and, and to presumably spy on the Russians and 
is this huge complex under the ice, sort of a mile under the ice. So is and and I thought this is this is kind of interesting. It has has all this these sorts of Cold War attachments and and intrigue and and it had been buried down there for sort of decades, and then they just rediscovered the stuff, and then they found you know, and this was this was about ice subsidence and and the way that in fact turns out green the the ice sheet covering Greenland retracts and develops far more quickly than we had initially thought. So, and, and that, that has all sorts of implications for, for the changes that are happening now. And uh, this, this is an interesting one because it, it blew up with military communities in the USA. Mm. It got a huge number of readers, particularly in the military, because I'd, I'd pitched it as this story from a kind of buried cold war base. And you can, you can sort of get through to audiences who wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily associate with climate stuff, but it was doing hundreds of thousands of readers in, in, in bases and, and military communities and towns. And you, and you know that these days through climate, excuse me, media analytics from Google and so on. So we knew who was reading it and I found that fascinating and you can tap into, you can, you can pick, kind of pick an audience and you say, okay, this is going to appeal to these guys and you can go after them. And so you can reach people you wouldn't usually reach with, if you, if you know how to pick a story. Yeah, this is interesting. I can link it also below in the show notes, um, if you want to get also sure. a reader sure. and maybe sure. some other articles and then your profile and everything. So you'll find it down below. But before we finish, I have two questions that I, that I came up with that I think are interesting. And I don't know if you have thought of them, but if you haven't, because you also did some interviews, right? If, if, if I'm correct with some, some climate people, but if, if you had the ability to interview anyone living or, or, or past about climate change, what would it be? And maybe what would you ask them? What like something that you really want to ask someone? I'd just like to have a, I would certainly like to have a conversation with Eunice Foote in about 1857. I don't know if you've done much work on Eunice Foote. She's the first person to discover that water vapor, water vapor and CO2 absorb heat from sunlight. And she figured out that it would change the climate. And she did that several years prior to John Tyndall, who was, yeah, he's the guy everyone's heard of. He's, yeah. he's the guy. But Eunice Foote, she wasn't allowed because he was a lady. She published her, he, she published her first study on CO2, I think in 1856 in the U.S. Uh, uh, and she never got to read her own papers at these conferences, these, these fancy salons that you know, the, 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 the great and the good of, of the burgeoning scientific community would get together and discuss the, the scientific discoveries of the day and a guy, it would be, it'd be men who would read aloud her paper to the audience because it was a woman and she wasn't allowed to go to these things. So she, she never got to do that. She probably not. I think I, I see her as I imagine in my mind, she's kind of a laconic person who'd be like, cause she was also. She also fought for, for women's rights. And, and this is very early, you know, this is before the suffragettes and all that, all that stuff. And so mid, mid 19th century. So uh, yeah, I would, I would, I would like to sort of talk to her about John Tyndall and say this, this guy came along and sort of overshadow you, but we've, we've rediscovered you in the 21st century. And, uh, you know, he kind of, he's, he's really stole her thunder, which okay. is, you can, and you can, you can see her grave in Brooklyn in Greenwood Cemetery. But uh, until recently, we didn't even know what she looked like. There wasn't a, 
a picture of her around and does it, but I've, I think there are, someone's found a, a portrait of her now. Yeah, actually, you know, it's interesting you say this because I just pulled up my signs of climate change notes when we're thinking about the discoveries and John Tindall somehow resonated in my mind because, you know, for the exam, I, I learned his name, but she also is in my notes. But what I have written there is that she also discovered it, but her discovery has been overlooked. So, uh, yes. yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, that, that's a really interesting yeah. name. And then my next question is about, and this, maybe you'll be surprised where it's coming from, but, you know, because climate change is really rooted in nature and in how, you know, the, the it's all about, you know, us bringing the anthropogenic change and destroying this all kind of like avatar m movies. So if you had the opportunity to, to interview an animal affected by climate change, mm. which one would you, if they could speak, obviously, <laughs> which one would you choose and why? Right now, I mean, you'd really want to talk to the orcas, right? So I, I want to ask the orcas about their plans to take on humanity at sea and, you know, what they want to see from us. Because I, 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 I think they're in with a chance. I think they could beat us. They seem pretty organized. They're able to work together in a way that we can't. They're bringing in other species now, apparently. They're talking to other cetaceans. And dolphins and whales are joining their struggle. And they have my full support. But I, I would like to, I'd like to hear more from their side. Most definitely. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, but, I mean, that's been also all over media now, the, the orcas. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, this is the, this, this the big thing. And they, I, they, they get it. They get the, the need for direct action. So uh, I think we should listen to them. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing I've heard that who, if, if the humanity had died, who would be the, the animals that would stay in here? That was a more disappointing answer than, than orcas. It was pigeons and rats that they... Uh, yeah. They are supposed to have the, the genes to overtake. They will inherit the earth. Yeah. Yeah. And cockroaches, of course. I'd rather have Gorkas inherit the world, but. Yes. It is yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> that leads me to my last question, which is more, you know, for the listeners hoping to get, you know, maybe there are some listeners who want to get a, a climate journalism career. So what would you advise, you know, students doing either the climate change course, the Oxford SED course, or anyone listening who wants to pursue a climate career? What advice would you give them? As someone from media, I, I mean, we need communicators. So I wouldn't turn people away from following this path. It, it, it can be a struggle because, that, that, you know, we, we only touched on it, but the media is having a great difficulty coming up with a viable business model in order to pay people. Because ultimately, we, you still need to get paid. You still need to live. And that's hard. And that leads to injustice because people can't, you know, if, if you're from a family with very little, you, you can't necessarily afford to do that sort of work. But we need communicators who can explain what's happening in a way that makes other people feel included and a way that makes it relevant to their lives. So in terms of direct advice, I'd say read as much as you can, listen to as much stuff as you can, find the areas that matter to you personally and to your community. And try to understand other people's fears and concerns, get into their shoes, learn to see from other perspectives. It's very, very, very important. It's not just about what you think, you know, it's about what your audience is thinking and feeling. And ultimately science can give us the tools to an extent to deal with climate change, but only human emotion can motivate us to do what's needed to be done. And it's, it's. It's human cooperation and, and, and human empathy that's going to get us where we need to be. 
Oh, that's nice words for an ending, very positive and hopeful. And I also believe that stepping out of our bubbles more often is necessary because there is a lot of speak about diversity and, and bringing diverse teams together to solve problems, which is true. But sometimes you wouldn't even think to, when you speak to someone on the other side of the world randomly. Look at me. I, the, the media needs fewer people like me. They need fewer white guys, essentially, telling, telling people what's going on. We need people who don't look like me. So I could, I could say all this stuff, but it's, it's a, it's a grim irony that I, it's, it's me delivering that message, you know, and I'm, I'm fully aware of that. But, but you're still delivering it, you know, so, so that's, that's really important. And thank you for that. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And thank you for, for coming and having this conversation. You're the first climate journalist to be on the Green Minds podcast since it launched. So thank you for coming and, wow. Thank you for inviting me. And I'll link everything that you've done and will do in the bio of, or in the show notes below. Fantastic. It's good to speak to you. Thank you.